Support for Small Joys comes from the Columbus Foundation, celebrating the creativity that inspires and strengthens the Central Ohio community every day. More at columbusfoundation.org. WOSU Public Media, this is Small Joys. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib, and thank you for joining me for this special bonus episode of the podcast. So we first conceived of this show back, way back now, what feels like decades ago, in the summer of 2019. And when I was asked for guest suggestions back then for a pilot episode, I immediately thought of my friend Will Evans, who's a talented poet who runs Black Nerd Problems, that website and organization as an anthology that is on the horizon coming out soon. Uh, and when we spoke back then, Will was planning to release his most recent poetry book, We Inherit What the Fires Left. If you don't know of Will, you should find out about Will. And I would say the best vessel is through Black Nerd Problems, a website that covers the world of comic books, science fiction, and pop culture from the perspectives of black people and people of color. The anthology of essays is coming out from Simon & Schuster this September. Uh, It is edited and written by Will Evans and Homar Holman, who co-runs Black Nerd Problems with Will. Our conversation began with the discussion of how artists hustle to get by. So many writers work day jobs and try to squeeze in creative work wherever and whenever they can. Taking the leap to working on art full-time can be scary and stressful, but also enthralling. Uh, When we recorded our talk, Will Evans had recently made that transition himself, quitting his day job to focus on his art full time in a time when, if you remember in 2019, it felt probably more viable and freeing to do that than it it would in the near future as a pandemic took hold. Uh, But I asked him what that change was like, especially with the added pressure of being a parent. So I'm a working parent. Um, I have a a daughter who is seven, who's going on about 42, which is exciting stuff, but like always a challenge. And just like anything else, it's always a challenge uh, trying to prioritize where your artistry comes in. Right. And, and, and how much time you can allot for that. But it is much easier being at home doing that um, as opposed to when I was working 10 hours a day um, and coming home and, and trying to do all those things too, which a lot of people still do, um, yeah. which I just, I know that struggle. So Yeah, I, most, I wanted to dive into that first as someone who also works from home, who left a job um, at a time when I was uncertain if I could leave a job. I think a lot of people um, think about working artists as uh, people who go to work, come home, do their art in the dark of the night or in the early morning before mm-hmm. going to work. Um, but there is also the working artist who decides to take the leap and leave the job yeah. uh, to commit themselves full time to the art. What were some anxieties with that for you? Hmm. I remember for me, I was kind of like, I'm not going to have a place to live. You know what I mean? Like I, I stayed at my job for so long because it's what I did. You know, I, I had this this secure every two weeks kind of thing. Right. Um, and then I dipped out of it and was was very anxious for a while before I got into a good working groove. Sure. So my wife and I, uh, we still, we had pretty good jobs, right? We were just like this middle income family. Um, we made pretty decent money. Uh, my wife does a job that she's extremely great at and, and likes the work is what she went to school for. She's in development. And so she does a lot of community development and things like that. Uh, I was at a job I didn't love, 
right? I was in hospital administration and management, right? Which has nothing to do with any of my artistry, has nothing to do with any of my passions. But it's weird when you're good at something um, that you're not necessarily passionate about. Right. And you can either monetize that or you can live off of that. And, and I had no passion for that. And so I would go to work. I'd be at work all day. I'd come home. I spend time with my family and then maybe I'd write something. And, and there's kind of this almost romanticizing of, yeah, I was writing until 2 a.m. because right. I didn't have another choice. Some of that's true. Um, what I found a big difference was the just the emotional energy. Right. If I spent eight hours and I was a manager. Right. So if I spent eight to nine to 10 hours at work, I spent a lot of energy directing, organizing. You know, my daughter might be asleep by nine o'clock. My wife might be working on something at that same time. And I physically have space, but I'm drained. I'm tired. Um, and so I think a big difference. And, and if we're being very honest, sometimes the family thing is cut short. Sometimes, you know, we're all watching TV and we're hanging out and I'm like, oh, I got this idea. Let me get this down. Right. And it cuts into that. And that's the real kind of casualty of, of trying to be a working parent and, and having this committed, you know, 40 plus hour a week job. It's not that I didn't have time for art. It's I didn't have time for the other things. And because I made art a priority for this day or this week or whatever, it ate into those other things. And so that's been the biggest win. Right. Um, the anxiety around it is like, oh, so I don't I don't have health insurance through me anymore. <laughs> right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, so I might have like a lump sum of money to do stuff with, but I don't have that security of like, oh, I know I'm getting X amount of dollars every two weeks. Right. Um, but I'm also lucky. I'm also privileged in that uh, I've been thinking about making that leap for a while in terms of leaving the job. And then, you know, I got a book deal <laughs> and it made that a little easier to swallow. Um, it made it give me much more of a security blanket. And I think there's a lot of people that make that leap that don't necessarily have that kind of security. And I give them a lot of credence for that, but I, I definitely had a, a, a little bit easier of a path of doing that. The book deal is a poetry book. Yes. With Simon and Schuster. Mm -hmm. uh, tell everyone a bit about it. So the book is 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 really about inheritance. And and so I kind of became very obsessed with the idea of generational wealth and how inheritance works. And so I am going to be 40 at the end of this year and my father grew up on a farm basically in Springfield Township. Um my mother grew up in the city in Akron. Uh they did not get anything from their their fathers um, and and almost from not their parents at all. Right. Uh, and so this idea. So now my father owns land um, like west of Columbus in the country. Right. And he said something really <laughs> that was striking to me a long time ago. I was out there helping him just like work on, you know, the land, like uh, cleaning up around the house and stuff like that that he built out there. And he said uh, he said, you know, all this is yours at some point. And he said it so matter of factly, which is really interesting for someone to kind of like announce their impending death to you. Um, but at the same time, it was very much like, hey, I'm letting you know I'm leaving all of this to you. And of course, that makes sense. I'm like the firstborn. Um, it, it's a logical leap. And my father owns all that free and clear. He's not borrowing on that land any, anymore. Um, 
so it makes sense, but it, it really crystallized for him to say that. And so I really became obsessed with this notion of like, how many people from my generation, black Americans that are turning 40, how many people, are, how many people that look like me are, are inheriting something mm-hmm. of that magnitude, right? Um, inheriting land, which is, has all kinds of implications, right? right? Not a lot. Not a lot is the answer to that. And, and it's, it's, it's still a rare thing. And so I kind of became obsessed with, you know, the the machinations of generational wealth and, and, and where the wage gap and where the wealth gap exists for, for black Americans. And so I kept start thinking about like, wow, how am I going to set my daughter up? Right. Like um, the house I live in now and the house that I may inherit from my father, like how does that transition to a baseline for her? Right. Um, I went to high school and then went to college with a lot of my white classmates who knew what they were getting. They knew what they were getting. Um, And that could go from, oh, like my dad's not going to drive this car anymore. So I'm going to take this car to college. And like that just sound like such a foreign entity to me. Right. Right. Um, Or, oh, my parents are going to retire and they're going to move to Florida and they're going to leave this house for me. So and it's just like. I, I could not wrap my head around that concept. And so I kind of became obsessed with how that can actually happen. And that's where my writing took a lot of that. And so I've written a lot about being a parent in, in my poetry before. Um, I've written a lot about kind of the what I've learned from my father and my mother as far as, you know, the sacrifices they had to make versus what we may have to make, my wife and I. Um, but I really started talking about this inheritance and what that looks like. Um, what do we physically get from from people before us, whether that's tactile or not? And, and, and what and what do we inherit from an emotional standpoint? Right. Um, you know, what scars does my father bear um, from growing up, you know, in the 60s in, in rural Ohio? And going to Kent State right. um, for his master's degree and things like that. What do I inherit from that from a from a from a social political standpoint as well? And so the book explores a lot of that. Um, And it was really important to me for that to be authentic because I write a lot about my daughter, because I write a lot about being a parent. I think a lot of people assume that, like, you end up being the hero of those stories. And and no, like I I talk a lot about and I think a lot about how I always feel like I'm two mistakes away from like setting my daughter back. Right. Right, And and, and so I think about that a lot and I I hope that comes out in the writing a lot too. Yeah. I think Ohio is an interesting place um, because it is a place where land itself is currency, you Mm -hmm. know, in certain areas of Ohio to inherit farmland, for example, means you could be set up for large portions of the rest of your life. You know, you sell the farmland or rent out the farmland. Um, And I, I, in the new poems of yours I've seen, I've been thinking a lot about this too, about how there are um, not only gaps in the way we talk about inheritance, uh, be it racially or, or even generationally, but also the way that we understand what wealth is. Hmm. You know what I mean? How, you know, I, I don't think I'll be left anything. And therefore, part of the way that... Um, capitalism propels everything but at least me in some ways is that i am often thinking well what could i leave behind if Mm -hmm. i were to have offspring the poet terence hayes insists on leaving behind only his art to his children Mm -hmm. you know nothing but his art because he thinks the art is what will make a life for them 
Um, so with that in mind, I, I, I'm wondering how much thought you've put into what you, and this might be morbid since you're you know, not very <laughs> old, but have you put any thought into what you're leaving for your family, for your daughter? And so on? Yeah. I come at it from the angle of, so I, I look at my family, right? And, and my father um, came from very much, and my father and my mother both, they came from pretty impoverished beginnings, right? And so he went to school, he got his master's, my dad's a scientist. That became his thing, and he wanted to he wanted to have upward mobility, right? I think the options that were ever present for my parents was, okay, we want our children to have a good school to go to, we want them to have a good education. The best way they knew to do that was to move us to the suburbs, right? We ended up in Dublin school systems, right, um, which I got an amazing education from. And I got a lot of other things from too, right? right. Uh, as far as you know, my how I sculpted my identity and, and and things like that. I think about those things now as a parent. My wife and I looked at that and was like, how can we give these best opportunities and still kind of preserve what we want? We really wanted a, a cake and eat it too situation, and it's like, well, we could pay taxes in the suburb, um, or we could, you know, if we have that money we could spend that on actual schools that prioritize not only things we want in education, but also about their, their mix of student body and, and faculty and things like that. I went to Dublin high school, man. I, I never had a, a black teacher, you know? So I think what I'm hoping is that I've given my daughter a little bit of a head start in, in identifying some of those things in that comfortability, right? I can honestly say I never felt truly comfortable in school until like I was in college where I could very much groom my social circles. I couldn't really do that in high school. And I'm hoping that, you know, the things that we get our daughter involved with, she can sculpt that for herself. And so part of that is setting up, well, you know, what will she have to worry about as she goes through school? Right. How can we teach her values of things and also be like, oh, well, I couldn't do this because my parents couldn't afford it. Right. Um, which is a super privilege to have. But you know what? And like if that's what I can give my daughter, then that's what I will. You know, I, I'm paying on a gazillion loans for, for college right, right. now. Yeah. Right. Um, and we won't go super political, but, you know, there's so much news about that right now. Yeah. About student yeah. loans. Um, I think everyone has that idea of like, oh, you know, if we can send our, our child to college and they don't have to pay for it. It's a theoretical idea, but it's a possible reality for my wife and I, right? There are certain things that I want when she is ready to start her life, she starts her life and she doesn't have to do cleanup on things first, right? She doesn't have to, well, let me, I want to buy this house and I want to move here, but I got these student loans to deal with, right? Things like that. I hope that we can aid in where she can start a life and start propelling herself. And if we're doing the kind of work we hope that we're doing, she can start a life that propels her and brings people with her and brings people under that tent because she doesn't have these other limiters. And that's what I hope. That's, that's my aspiration um, for what we're trying to leave her. Black Nerd Problems started here in Columbus. Yeah. Kind of just uh, off of an idea you had how long ago? Yeah. Now? It's been five, you just celebrated we five just years. We just celebrated five years. Um, and just off of you seeing a lack of representation. Yeah. You decided to create Black Nerd Problems, right, and it right. now has grown to the point where you're kind of, where Black Nerd Problems at least has a presence at 
almost every Comic-Con. Right, 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 right. And every kind of convention that, you know, is summoning all of quote-unquote nerd culture, even at this point, is popular culture. Right, right, right. right. I don't think... Which I think is perhaps another question. Do you think there's a divide between nerd culture and popular culture? Or is, have they intersected so much that they're now singular? They're more so now, a little bit. There's still there's still stuff that I think is like categorized as nerd culture that's almost, uh, taboo's the wrong word, but it's like, it's not touching mainstream culture yet. And as much as we bemoan it, like comic book movies have helped bridge that a bunch, right? right. Like comic books were like the super nerd thing and who reads comic books? And, you know, there's a quote from, uh, is it Tim Burton? When he when he did Batman, you know, he 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 directs Batman and he got criticized for how it didn't like follow some comic book conventions. And his answer was like, anyone that knows me knows I would never read a comic book. But, right. But he did right. Batman. Yeah. Right. And so there was still that notion that comic books were the super nerdy thing that only dudes that lived in their mom's basement and had crates of comic books only only read. And so the success of comic book movies has helped bridge that a lot um, where you don't get laughed out of the room but like you still don't walk into mainstream conversations talking about how much you like anime right right yeah um, so I think there's some bridging there and I think it's going to continue to happen mostly and this is the very cynical side of me mostly because people find profit in it right they find a way to market it they find a way to commodify it um, what's and, the end result of that then right I mean if we if we were to imagine then that the era of the comic book movie as we know it mm-hmm. has is well, you, and you might have a different opinion of this, but the era of the comic book movie as we know it has seemed to take a turn towards ramping down old stories, familiar stories, and in starting new ones. And and it, it seems like there are slightly fewer of them than there were kind of during the heyday of. Movies? Movies, yeah. Well, movies, yes, but media, no. Media, absolutely not. Right, because yeah. like, there's a new, like every every broadcast station announces what comic book series they're going to have. Yeah, some all the streamers, like everyone has a streaming service and they all got like yeah. four comic books. But as far as the films go, right, mm-hmm. because the films seem like huge access points for folks. Yeah. Do you think there's an end, uh, no pun intended, but do you think there's an end game where the profit is it's, it's no longer being pulled from the culture and then the culture has to create something else? I don't know. I, I feel like uh, <laughs> I feel like the machine is too big to judge it right now, right? Like, how much money did Endgame do? Like, yeah. And that's ultimately going to be the, the motivator for how things get greenlit and how many of these things happen, right? Um, I don't think, even, even if they cease to be as popular, I don't think comic book movies go away, because they were around when they were terrible, right? right? They've been around um, for our whole, right. our whole lives, and before. Like, I mean, to think, like, Chris Evans, who became the face, you know, one of the faces of Marvel, um, as as Captain America, he was in those Fantastic Four movies that were terrible, right? And so, we're, one that is to say, we're not that far removed from right. comic book movies being atrocious right, movies, right. right? And like very corny fanfare. But that also is to say uh, that there is a lot of transformation that can happen in a pretty short period of time. And I think a lot of people credit, you know, Christopher Nolan with kind of transferring the comic book movie uh, as far as how it because because he shot it like a real movie. Now, some of those say to the detriment a little bit, right? Because it took a lot of the fantastical elements out of a comic book movie and there's no better character to do yeah, that no, with than Batman. Batman. Yeah, right? he's just like a guy. Yeah, it's just a dude and yeah. you can you can drill a lot of his villains down to like just some dudes. Just some dudes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, 
So making comic books more movies more real kind of took them away from comic books as a medium and made them easier to digest for mainstream. I think what I'm a little inspired by is like some of the Marvel movies, but definitely some of the new wave of DC movies, which I'll be the first one to yeah. tell you, like the DC movies are usually terrible. Usually bad. I was going to ask like, about the DC movies. But like but Shazam is a fun movie. Shazam was a lot of fun. I haven't seen yeah. Aquaman. I've, I, I don't know. It's not know. good. Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> it's but, not good. Um, but like, I'm excited for, you know, Dwayne Johnson's uh, Black Adam movie, right? Yeah. So, but but those have a, a high fantasy level to them, right? And so yeah. if they can bridge those where they're enjoyable movies where they aren't corny as all get out and still like preserve some fantasy elements to it, I think that's hopeful, right? Because it means that not every superhero movie has to be this dark brooding, um, you know, the sky is always gray kind of films. It seems like there's a struggle to bridge that, though, because I think I, I, with DC particularly, I thought Suicide mm-hmm. Squad was a good opportunity to be both um, kind of whimsical, mm-hmm. but also a little dark, but also kind of funny. Yeah. And it seemed to fail on every front. So I think what's what's interesting and it was important to talk about with comic book movies, just like anything else, is that when you have a medium like that that's kind of been categorized as one thing, movies are allowed to fail that yeah. don't indict the industry right, right right and like suicide squad is just like a bad movie it could have been so many other things right and i know we'll probably get some a lot of pushback on this i think the wonder woman movie is not a good movie the best part of the wonder woman movie is easily to me the first 20 minutes of it right it's on the island it's all, all the women the warriors you see like you start to see a little bit of a range of all the different like uh women that are on the island as soon as she gets to the mainland, so to speak, um, where she becomes the only woman in a, in a man's world and, and like all these very stereotypical outlooks of, of, of everything, then the movie fall apart, falls apart for me. But like the first 20 minutes of Wonder Woman, like if they could have kept that kind of energy and perspective, I thought would have been a great movie. So but I think it's very easy for a, a comic book movie to fall down and be like, oh, well, comic book movies. It's like, well. They're allowed to have bad movies, too. And I don't even know if this is a segue or bridge or anything else, but I think a lot about this with, like, black art, right? Absolutely. Um, and that there – but but I think it's less for comic book movies, obviously, because they have these huge money right. machines black behind them. it feels like the stakes are higher. The you stakes know, are if, high. If you think about Ava DuVernay, for example, The Wrinkle in Time, which yeah. wasn't great. Right. You know, wasn't bad, but wasn't great. Um, but I, I, I kind of hated watching people kind of – to the, this mechanism where they were fighting to extract something good out of it, you know, or, yeah. or, or afraid to say that they didn't enjoy it because they were worried about what that meant for her career. It's like, right. I think if anyone's earned the right to make a bad movie, <laughs> Ava DuVernay right. has earned the right to make a bad movie. And we, we do this thing where we put a lot of, um, and I say this as like, you know, uh, black consumers, we, we put a lot of these pressures on ourselves as well. So that movie comes out, what, a month or two months after Black Panther? Yeah. And so Black Panther has all this energy, all this motivation, and it just happens to be an enjoyable and a well-made film, right? That happens to be a comic book movie that takes this iconic, like, all these things come together to make that a very enjoyable and successful film. And then we had a lot of people like, hey, all that energy you gave to Black Panther, you better be giving to Wrinkle Time. And it was like, and, and I was like, Ring on time don't look as good as Black Panther though, dog. Like, like, yeah, and, and it's did. and yeah. it's okay. It's okay that it doesn't. And and but I think the stakes always feel so high, um, 
for those kind of films because we're, we we have this mentality that like yo if this fails we won't get another shot right which I don't think is unfounded if Black Panther fails you know because at the time Black Panther was the most expensive Marvel film right. when it was made. So if Marvel dishes out $250 million for a film that falls flat on his face, then the stakes feel pretty high and it feels consequential, right? But it doesn't mean that like those films have to be exceptional all the time. No. My hope is that we move past the scarcity model, yeah. the fears around scarcity models with art from marginalized folks, you know, not just black folks, but also like queer folks, trans folks, yeah. like any member of a marginalized group who feels as though they have to be model creatives or else they won't, you know, not only are they closing a door for themselves, they're closing mm-hmm. a door for everyone who shares their marginalized identity. And that's, I, I don't know how to work past that. I mean, I'm sure, you know. But we know yeah. where it comes from. Yeah, absolutely. But it we know from it comes from place. a completely earnest place. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, without everything becoming an instant classic, <laughs> I feel like there's this pressure that it has to be that or we just won't get another opportunity. I mean, so it's a volume of work, right? Yes. I think the great equalizer is is when people are, are not good. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, right. the, the true equality is mediocrity, right? Yeah. When someone can be mediocre and be fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and some of that is, is built into this idea that marginalized folks have to be two times better, which, of course, mm-hmm. uh, has been shown. Um, and with that in mind, do you see ways that black nerd problems has helped move the needle? But in, in the five years it's been alive, have you seen the way that not only the site itself, but how the site's been built with the writers and the, right. the various you know lenses that the writers hold? Have you seen... Black Nerd Problems move the needle for... Yeah, I'm really proud of it. Um, you know, when Omar and I started, Omar Holman, when we started Black Nerd Problems, we, we we found pretty early on, we accumulated a team, we found pretty early on that like, hey, we need to diversify our group within us. Because I think people see Black Nerd Problems as like, oh, a lot of black people, they are diverse. It's like, yeah, we're diverse from the mainstream, but we're not, right. we weren't necessarily, when we started, we weren't diverse within our, our group and our voice. And so one of the things that helped us grow is eagerly seeking out voices that were different than than ours, right? Which is a tough thing. I mean, Omar and I started that that site. We were the leading prominent voices on that site for a while, like in terms of volume or popularity of, of certain articles. But I think we recognized early on that like that's not necessarily the path we wanted to do. I mean, if that's what we wanted, we could have done a two-person blog and been done with it, right? Um, but we were really in tune with like trying to broaden that scope because we wanted a lot of people to have the moment we had, which was, yo, this thing's being talked about. And like, it seems like no one cares, but us. So we start talking about it. Oh, some other people do care. Well, I'm not going to cover every base. Omar's not going to cover every base. So how much outside of our experience can that same effect be? be used for and 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 so we still we we did we definitely um expanded the reach of 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 our writers which expanded the reach of our readership um and people that um participate in that and i think we have moved the needle quite a bit for how these conversations go down because blinder problems didn't necessarily stem out of um there aren't enough black comic book characters it didn't necessarily come out of a critique of pop culture and diversification in it, it came from the the coverage of it. It came from like the actual critique of it, right? 
the story I tell the most is I used to watch Mad Men, which makes me like one of the six black Americans that watch Mad Men, I'm sure, um, when it was on. And uh, I listened to a podcast that I liked a lot. I listened to them every week and they talked about TV and movies and things like that. And they always talk about Mad Men when it was, you know, in season. And there was this amazing scene where a black secretary was staying at the house of one of the a white characters and they were laughing, they were joking, they were drinking. And the white character goes to go to bed because the black character was going to be sleeping on the couch. And she realized she left her wallet on the table. And there's this amazingly tense moment of this character realizing that she had this moment that was just racist as hell. That was just like, oh, my God, if I leave my wallet, she might take money out of it. And And all this is done silently. She recognizes that. And she's like, should I do something? I know she noticed me pause. What should I do now? And this is really great TV moment, right? And so I remember waiting for the podcast because I wanted to hear him talk about that. And they were like, yeah, that was a pretty good moment. And then the next scene, they just moved completely right, on. Right. And it and, and it, it made me realize, I was like, either those two hosts, either they weren't equipped to talk about it and they had that recognition of it. They weren't equipped to talk about that kind of moment. Or they didn't care. Or it wasn't a priority. And whatever answer, I think that's where Blackner problems is essential to that conversation. Um, three things that have kept you, what are three things that have kind of propelled you towards the work you've been doing in the past year? Uh, just for anything? Like, yeah, three things that have made you, that have inspired you or bought you some joy or kept you working yeah, towards um, all the things you're doing. So like the, the, the growth of Blackner problems has been big. You know, there's not a week that goes by that someone doesn't personally thank me or thank the site or something like that for giving them the safe haven. And, you know, just to disclose a little bit about myself, that is not what I thought would be the byproduct of Black No Problems. You know, when Omar and I put this together, we were like, hey, we're going to write some articles. Some people going to laugh at us. Some people going to like it. They're going to share it. They're going to share it with their friends. And that's how it'll get popular. Right. Like I I really had this kind of like one way transactional idea of it in the beginning. And I didn't realize it would become so much more of a conversation. I didn't realize that we would end up building a community where people would be like, hey, so something happened in nerd news and I'm going to black nerd problems because that's where I feel safe and validated at or that's where I feel represented where I haven't previously been. And so the continued support for black nerd problems and the continued investment from people in black nerd problems lets me know that. I helped create something that has a real value in people's lives beyond just like us talking mess about comic books, but it really does provide a safe haven for people. So that'd be one. Two is cliche and everything, but man, I, everything I do right now, um, I realize that there's, there's nothing that will be shielded from my daughter in the future. Right. Which doesn't put me in a box of like things I'm scared to do. Um, it actually makes me kind of go full throttle on the things I believe in um, because I would rather be seen as someone who hits the gas on the things that he values as opposed to I try to, you know, play the line or be <clears throat> Cory Booker about it or whatever. Um, and so, you know, there's that cliche of like eyes are on you and, and I really believe that. And so that that kind of aspect um, it's kind of kept me motivated to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and also, this is feels very specific um, to poetry. I think 
in poetry right now, there is so much, and it's for, for good reason, for as a good thing, there is so much of a wave towards younger voices that are still trying to identify themselves, right? Um, which is, we talk about kind of some of the cliche of like, does poetry save lives and blah, blah, blah. I think it does in right. a lot of aspects, right? Especially when you get around people, young folks, high schoolers, people like that, that are still trying to identify who they are. And you have poets that are kind of leading the way in that and that can help them bridge those things. Uh, so I think that's hugely important. And I think that's kind of been a wave of what poetry and kind of the popular culture sense has been doing. I kind of look at myself as, uh, I think we used to look at this, um, we used to look at rappers and be like, so what's going to happen when those rappers turn 35? What's right. going to happen when those rappers turn 40? What are they going to be rapping about, right? They're not still rapping about the streets, or maybe they are, right? Yeah. Um, well, push a T certainly is. Push a T still. Uh, and, but you know what? That's one of those things. It's like, if you do something so well, yeah. maybe you keep doing it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think of myself like that from, you know, coming out of being a performance poet and being in slam, that what my perspective means in poetry you know, I talk a lot about <laughs> what struggles I go through as a homeowner, what I go through teaching my daughter how to ride a bike, being a, a, a parent on the sidelines, watching them play sports, play a sport I used to play. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I think that perspective is important because we all need roadmaps or we all need to know what has happened. Right. Or what can happen. And I think there's just like there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I don't know what my poetry is going to do in this fashion. And then I read so and so and I was like, oh, these things are possible. I kind of wanted to distill that to like I'm writing about being a 21st century black American poet who is trying to survive and live in this like middle income life in neighborhoods that don't necessarily want me there, that sure as hell didn't want me there beforehand. And so I want to show that not only can I live that kind of life and and try to live and try to be happy and try to thrive in those environments, but it can be written about too. Right. And it can be written about in an interesting way um, that people want to invest, even if they are not living that life themselves. Right, right. Um, and so I think that I want to keep doing that and, and, and showing that there is a presence and a need for that kind of writing. Perfect. Thank you, William Evans. Thank you, thank you. My whole heart, get my whole get my whole get my whole get my whole at the end of every episode, I'll take some time to talk about things that I've listened to, things that I've seen, art that I care about, or something in the city that I love. Today, I'm going to talk about friendship and what it is to rebuild someone's voice when you miss them. In the spring of 2008, I had just lost a dear friend of mine who had gone missing and uh, was later found uh, dead. And... In that same season, the Frightened Rabbit album, The Midnight Organ Fight, came out. And I really found myself clinging to that album in the dark moments and listening to that album when I was searching for any kind of relief from what I felt. Um, it is an intense album. It is a sad album. It is an honest album. And all of those things allowed me to confront the many stages of grief I was going through. 
10 years after that album came out, Frightened Rabbit's frontman Scott Hutchinson also disappeared and was found dead. He disappeared on May 9th and uh, 2018 and was found floating in an up dead in a river in Scotland. Last night, I drove home from Detroit, which is about a three hour drive through mostly darkness. And I listened to an album called Tiny Changes, which is a covers album of the Frightened Rabbit album, The Midnight Organ Fight. The album features covers from folks like Ben Gabbard, uh, Julian Baker, Aaron Dessner and Lauren Mayberry, Josh Ritter. All the songs are restructured and reformatted and kind of reimagined in the way that covers can be reimagined. And on the drive home, I found myself thinking about how valuable it is to want to hear someone's voice again so much that you rebuild their songs in your own image. Um, in a way, that is what friendship is, that is what memory is, that is what the constant state of grieving is rebuilding what we know of the people we love to make them touchable if even just for a few minutes and if you are a frightened rabbit fan i hope you find something on there that you love and that reminds you of scott Small Joys is a production of WOSU Public Media. The show is produced and edited by Michael DeBonis. I want to thank William Evans again for joining us and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, help us spread the word. Tell your friends and rate the show or write a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, I hope you find something in your everyday living that brings you a bit of joy. Joy.